you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Well, good morning again, uh, everyone. If you do have your Bibles as we go through, that would be fantastic. If you don't, I think we're going to have it on the screen. Um, but there's been a criticism that I've dealt with in my preaching ministry over the years, and it's this, it's a big one that every text I preach on is my favorite passage in the Bible. So there you go. I, I want to reassure you today that this has never been my favorite passage in the Bible, right? Um, and let me tell you why, because uh, from the age I turned 18, I joined the army. And uh, from that period of time, my, my, my livelihood was learning about force and how to use it. Uh, weapons of war and how to wage them. That was my job. And maybe because of this, in the Bible, I gravitated to stories of civil disobedience. I gravitated to stories of uh, men and women standing up against evil authorities and injustice. I gravitated to stories of Gideon and, uh, and David overthrowing evil oppressors, or even the midwives in Exodus uh, refusing to obey Pharaoh, or maybe even as far as Peter drawing his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and launching out. Those were the stories I gravitated towards. They were bold and militant and exciting. But the Bible, God's holy word... And if you're not yet a Christian, then you've got this to look forward to. It has a habit of rubbing against the things that we hold most dear. The Bible uh, is described, it describes itself as a sharp two-edged sword that can cut deep inside of us and reveal what's really there. And when the Bible does that, at least in my own personal experience, it's painful. It's painful. It rubs against us. But let me tell you something that should encourage you, that we should expect that if the God of the Bible is real, that he created all of this world, and we didn't create him in our own image, 
and he's not real, if he is really real, we should expect that he would sometimes say things that we disagree with or things that rub against us, shouldn't we? Wouldn't the real God of the universe sometimes, perhaps occasionally, not agree with us in everything we think and do? I, of course, he would. And it, but if you had, I mean, there's lots of areas this happens, isn't it? Uh, as Christians, we are, we are also people who live in culture. We live in the world around us. And, and it's interesting throughout church history that every generation of Christians have different things that rub against them in the Scriptures. Uh, Our generation, the things that rub against us, is different to those generations before. 1,500 years ago, for example, they had very different things that annoyed them about Scripture. For us, there's lots of things. It might be gender, it might be sexuality, it could be even race. There's a whole lot of things that the Bible speaks into which can make us uncomfortable. Two years ago, I would have laughed if you told me this passage was one of them. I would have gone, are you serious? This has got to be one of the most uncontroversial passages in Scripture, how we relate to government and politicians as Christians. No longer. Uh, I've been sweating on it this week, uh, praying about it, because, because as, a, as a church, like many, like I think all churches in our state, this has been a hot issue. It's been difficult. And the last thing that I want to do is come to God's Word and reopen tensions. I was like, well, can't we just skip over it this week? You know, like, let, let's go back to sinful passions that wage war against our soul. This morning, we're just going to look at verse 11, and we're going to stop there. Um, I don't feel that I could do this because as a pastor, I only have authority coming from the Word of God. I need to actually open and look at what it says. And as obedient children, as the Bible calls us, then we also need to hear the words of our Father. So this morning, we're going to do that. We're going to look at what the Bible says, and, um, and we're going to do it in a way that I think is, is pretty direct. We're going to look at three things that Peter says about us in relation to human authorities. Number one, what we have to do. Number two, why we have to do it. And thirdly, what the result will be. That's looking specifically at the text. And then we're going to finish off together by looking at three worked examples. And I think that you will all agree that these worked examples are things that are very pertinent or have been very pertinent in the last two years. Number one, face marks. Number two, the suppression bill. And number three, vaccine mandates. All right, so whatever this sermon is be, I don't think it's going to be boring. But <laughs> as we get in, uh, let's pray because um, we clearly need God's help. Um, I need God's help. We as a community need God's help that we would come to his word in a way that would be building us up, remembering it's a double-edged sword. But let's come and I'd love you to pray for me and with me as we do that. Father, we come together today and we are... We long to be obedient children. We humble ourselves beneath your word and we pray that in these next moments as we come to it and we focus on it and we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take that two-edged sword to us. Lord, we pray that you would do it because we know that it's good for us, that you are a God who speaks and you don't just speak to comfort us and to encourage us, although you do that, you also speak to convict and to rebuke and to exhort us. And so, Lord, do it this morning. As a church, we want to hear from you. We want to hear you speak. And so we pray that you would do it now for your glory, not ours, that you would speak, not me, and that the end result would be honor and praise to you as we live lives that you call us to. So we ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So what do we have to do? Why do we have to do it? And what is the result? Firstly, what do we have to do? What does the Bible say we should do? Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Uh, The motivation for that command comes from the previous verse. That was verse 13. Verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter has told the exiles that he's writing to who they are. So this letter of 1 Peter is going to these small Christian churches, and he says to them, remember in the first week of the series, you are elect exiles. You are chosen by God. You're dearly loved, he says. You are special. But then he says you're also exiles. You're living in a world where you don't belong. You're living in a world, but you are going somewhere else towards your real home. And now in, Peter's been laying the theological foundations, and now he's drilling into the specifics. And in the next weeks, he's going to talk about three things. He's going to talk about how we as Christians should relate to economic authority, specifically to masters, to bosses, next week. The week after, we're going to look at how we should relate to domestic authority. He's going to look at marriage relationships. Today, though, He begins by looking at specifically at political authority, how Christians are to relate to political authority. Verse 13, again, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, be it to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. The Bible commands us to be subject to government at all levels. So uh, in in this case of of, uh, Peter's first hearers, he's saying be subject to the emperor as supreme, then to governors sent by him, and he doesn't say it, but I think it would apply, and to local leaders as standing under those, the authority of those too. Now, what does be subject to mean? Uh, I think we know what it means instinctively, be subject to something, But definitions are being under the authority of, receiving commands from, being obedient to. Uh, What we have here is an explicit command, not towards civil disobedience, but towards civic, civil obedience. Uh, That's what the command in Scripture clearly is. And what is really remarkable is that Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are living under the government system of a man called Emperor Nero. And I I should have had a picture of him. Uh, Emperor Nero, (laughs) I was going to, no, I won't even go there. Emperor Nero was psychologically unstable. Uh, He was neurotic. Uh, He murdered his own mother. Uh, Emperor Nero will be the one who, you know, you've probably heard he fiddled while Rome burned. Whether or not that happened, we don't know for sure. But what we do know for sure is that he blamed Christians for the burning of Rome, which he began. And as a result of that, he he instituted terrible, horrific um, murders of Christians, burned them alive for no crime. This is Nero, right? This is Nero, who is the Roman Empire emperor at that stage to which Peter is writing to these Christians, and he's saying, be subject to the emperor. It's the same emperor that is eventually going to murder Peter himself. Peter calls for civic obedience to the emperor Nero and to his governors. 
Uh, in verse 17, he goes even further. He says, honor the emperor. Honor Emperor Nero. The word honor means to treat them or regard them with special attention and respect. Uh, Peter's writing to these Christian churches who are very familiar with Nero. And he says, be subject to all human authority, to the emperor and to governors. Honor the emperor. Well, verse 17, though, also makes some important distinctions. If you look at it, uh, Peter says, honor the emperor, fear God. Honor the emperor, fear God. Uh, Peter is saying implicitly here what the rest of the Bible says explicitly, and that is that while we are to honor and uh, respect and to be submissive to secular authority, political authority, we are to fear only God. You might remember Jesus himself uh, preaching and speaking, and he, and he says, he says, don't fear man. Don't fear political authority because they can kill your body, and after that, they can do nothing. Jesus says, I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear the one who, after the destruction of your body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yeah, I tell you, fear him. There's, there's a distinction that the Bible always makes between human authorities and between God. And when there is a conflict between a human authority and between God, the Bible is always explicit that we and our, uh, our allegiance as, as elect exiles is always to God. If there is a conflict, it is always to God without exception. Peter himself, the guy that's writing this letter to the churches, he says in the book of Acts, uh, the, the authorities have commanded him, stop preaching about Jesus, and this is Peter's response, we must obey God rather than men. Same guy writing to the churches. If there's a clash, you must, we must obey God. And Peter is going to put that into practice, of course, very soon after this letter is written, because he's going to be commanded to stop speaking about the Lord Jesus, he will refuse, and he will be crucified by Nero. So there's a distinction that the text clearly makes, and the Bible makes a time and again. But we've looked at the distinction. It is impossible, though, to actually get away from the command that the Bible gives us through Peter. It's impossible to avoid this, honestly. We are called to be subject to human governments. Uh, we tend to um, ask the question and go like, how do we get out of this? Well, what is the minimum that we can do and still be obedient to God? What is the barest possible submission that we can show and say, you know, we're right with God? You know? But that's actually always the wrong approach. Uh, we, we humans tend to be legalistic, and when we operate in the flesh, we're always looking for caveats and for, for a little exit doors. I don't have to do this because A, B, C, and D, I've got, I've got out of this. I've kept the law, but I've... Whereas the Bible's, the heart of the law is always the spirit of the law, and the spirit of the law that Peter gives us is we must be submissive people by instinct towards the political authorities that he has given us. That, that's the heart of the law, not how we can get away from it, but how we can honor it. So this is what the Bible tells us to do, very specifically, be subject to human political authorities as Christians, number one. Number two, why does he command us to do this? Why? Well, I think verse 13 gives it away. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
for the Lord's sake. Because of Jesus. Why? Why would we be, Peter be saying, for the Lord's sake, be subject to human authorities? Why? Why? Because it's God himself who gives these human institutions their authority. Human institutions have an authority that's a delegated authority, right? It's given by God to human institutions, and so therefore when we submit to human institutions, we are actually submitting to the one who gave the authority to. Uh, When I was an officer in the army, I would give commands. When I was in infantry, I'd give commands to my platoon sergeant. The platoon sergeant would go to the soldiers and relay those commands. Now, the platoon sergeant was not giving commands on behalf of himself, he was giving commands on behalf of me, the platoon commander. And if the, platoons, if the soldiers refuse to obey the, obey the platoon sergeant, it's not the platoon sergeant they're refusing to obey, it's me. And so too with this, God delegates political authorities their authority. They come from God. And Romans, uh, in chapter 13, Paul, who was also incidentally murdered by Nero as well, this is what he says. Chapter 13, verse 1 in Romans, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Saying the same thing. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Hear what he's saying? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It's a big deal. Peter and Paul both say to resist the human authorities is a big deal. Potentially, by resisting the human authorities, we are resisting God himself, and that never goes well. Now, I want to say that this does not mean that Christians should be naive. This does not mean that Christians should look at governments of the left or the right and go, they are just wonderful altruistic, seeking the benefit of the people that they govern, that they're they're really like, they're like God himself, perfect in the way they wield authority. Christians should never be that naive. Governments are made up of humans, and we know what humans are like. (laughs) Right down to the depths of our heart, even the best of us have struggles with motives. And Lord Acton, the the great um, jurist and politician, said more than 100 years ago now, he said the famous words, you probably know them, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Power corrupts. We should expect governments, even the best of them, to be corrupt, to be, um, to be making decisions that are not always for the benefit of those they're governing, for making decisions that are about getting re-elected or whatever they may be, rather than what is the best thing. We should expect that to happen, and yet... The Bible calls us to willingly submit to these same human authorities. We, we live lives of submission, submission for the sake of Jesus, do you see? Why should we submit to human authorities? We do it because of Jesus, because he has created order in our world and he has delegated these authorities, his authority. We submit because of Jesus. So why? What should we do? We need to be subject to government. Why? Because of Jesus. Thirdly now, what's the result? Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, In Peter's day, there was a lot of ignorance that surrounded the church. So Romans heard about communion, 
and we're like, oh boy, they're eating flesh and blood in their services. They're a whole bunch of cannibals. And so the word went out, Christians are cannibals. Um, there, was a whole, there was a rumor going around that Christians were just one big incestuous sect. Uh, they were committing like horrible moral evils, these Christians. And, and more than that, they were committing social evils. They didn't care about the government anymore. They were insurrectionists. They, they were getting rid of the old gods in which Rome had been built. The, these people were, were morally evil and politically corrupt and dangerous. And Peter writes to these Christians who are, all those things are false, and are receiving those accusations. He says, you live lives in relation to the government in such a way that the, those who speak foolish things, ignorant people, will look silly. That's what he says to them. And it might surprise you to know that foolish ones still malign the church of Jesus. They still accuse it of evil, of being a, a destructive force in society, not a good thing. You live in the world, you know that that's the case. You read social media, you know that's true. And Peter's response is, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, so Peter's saying, objectively, Christians live such a life that on the day of God's visitation, Everyone will see and proclaim that they lived, you lived good lives. Now, what does he mean by the day of visitation? Could be two things. It could be often in scripture, the day of visitation is the day of God's final judgment. God is coming to the world and he is judging all the world. And if that's what Peter means, it means that in that moment when the final judgment comes and when Jesus as the great judge of all judges the world, that the way Christians live their lives in relation to government will be so beautiful and holy that even those who hated them, who killed them, who murdered them will be against their will forced to proclaim his glory and his goodness. That could be what Peter means when he talks about the day of visitation. But the day of visitation, that term, is also used as not demonstrating God's mercy, God's judgment, but his mercy. There are occasions in Scripture when the day of visitation is when God breaks through the ignorance and the darkness and he makes people gloriously born again. Peter's been talking about that, being going from darkness to light, being completely born again on the inside, being brought into a relationship with God. The day of visitation may be the day of God's mercy. When men and women see who God is and are drawn irresistibly to him, and if that's the case, Peter is saying, Christians, the way you obey a secular government, the way you are subject to them will shine such a light that people who don't yet know Jesus will be drawn to it. They'll want to know what makes you different. And on the day of visitation, they will come to know the Lord Jesus. And you know what? I don't know if it's a... I actually think both of them are possible, right? That the day of visitation refers to God's judgment, but also to God's mercy. I think they're both true. And the example of the Roman Empire is very clearly that as Christians lived under this secular authority, which was at best flawed and at worst downright evil... As they lived under this authority, they behaved in such a way that the world around them was drawn to know. The church exploded because these Christians were living radically different lives and God was growing his church. That's, that's why Peter tells us we should do that. So what is commanded, why it's commanded and what the result will be. None of that is controversial. 
The Bible says it. It's obvious, isn't it? The only way you can argue against those things in the Bible is by not believing the Bible. But for, for Christians who come and believe the Bible, it's not controversial. But how we apply it, not to the Roman Empire, which is a long time ago, but to our day and age, Dan Andrews, Scott Morrison, that's more tricky, isn't it? So let's now look at three areas, and these, as I said, are not going to be boring. They should be pretty practical. Let's try and apply what the Bible explicitly teaches to those issues that we face today. Number one, face masks. Well, face masks, this is an auspicious day, didn't know that this would be the case. We don't have to wear them, isn't it wonderful? Um, we may choose to, but we don't have to. It's, it's an absolutely wonderful thing. Face masks came back in March 2020, almost two years ago, and the government ordered that, uh, that all people were to wear them, and the, the, um, the justification given was to reduce the spread of coronavirus. So, face masks. What should Christians do with face masks? Should they wear them? Should they not? Well, remember, um, when we're coming to the text, we need, if we're going to say that we should disobey the government, then the burden of proof lies on those of us who would say we should not obey the government, because the instinctive response of the Christian is to be submissive to political authorities. So, should we obey, should we wear face masks? The instinctive answer is yes, unless we decide no. So, why might we not wear face masks? Well, I hate wearing face masks because they itch, because I tend to use the same one for months at a time, so I can't really blame anybody. Uh, they itch, um, I forget about them, um, what else? Uh, they're irritating, aren't they? I've, I don't like breathing in them, um, what else? And I don't like them because I'm not honestly that convinced they actually work. All right, that's my little, little thing there. Right, I don't like them for those reasons, but none of those reasons seem to be a legitimate scriptural reason that I would not wear face masks, do they? They're, they're all kind of preference things. Well, is it because maybe that the government's actions in ordering people to wear face masks are evil? So as a Christian, I'm not going to do that because what the government asks me to do is evil. I don't think you could say it's evil to wear a face mask. Um, well, well, why is there something beyond that? It, it, it may not be wise, it may not be needed, it might be a grab at more power over our lives... But it really seems difficult scripturally to argue that Christians should refuse to wear face masks if we only look at what the Bible teaches in the context. It's a difficult argument to make, I think, and be true to scripture. Uh, we're commanded to be subject to the government. The government orders to wear face masks. As Christians, we should wear face masks unless we get a valid exemption. I also think Peter would say that not obeying the government actually results in bad press. For Christians. I think refusing to, I've, like you have read many articles where, where people have looked at the church and said, why is it that more Christians than non-Christians you know, non refuse to wear face masks? Because they don't care about other people, because they're selfish, because they're unloving. And those foolish people writing those things, and they're foolish, those foolish people writing those things, not wearing a face mask seems to me to give more ammunition and potentially results in someone going, well, if that's what Christians are like, then I'm not interested. So I think face masks is actually not that controversial. Some of you do, I know, um, but we're people of the word. I can only speak what I see in Scripture, and that's what I see. You may disagree, but if you do, come at me with Scripture. Come at me and show me how this particular area is an issue that Christians should disobey the government. 
Be subject to human authorities for the sake of Christ. Now, second, what about the suppression bill? It's not a pandemic related, it's something different, but it's been in our news for the last two years. If you don't know what the suppression bill is, it was a law that was passed last year, it came into effect last week in Victoria. This is a law which claims to protect vulnerable people in Victoria by protecting them from people coming in and forcibly trying to abuse them in a way that um, forces them to change their sexual orientation or their gender orientation. This law says that will now be illegal. Now, I don't actually know a single pastor who would ever condone anyone getting forcibly adjusted in any of those ways. But that's the law. Uh, From last week, it is now an imprisonable offence for me to pray with someone. One of you come after the service and say, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. Would you please pray for me, Andrew? You asked it. You asked it of me in a church environment, and I agreed that is now an imprisonable offence. That's a criminal offence. And it's not just me. If you're a parent of a child and your child is going through gender dysphoria, they're, they're, they're struggling with their biological gender, and you refer your child to a psychologist to try and help them fit their, their mind with their biological gender, you are creating, uh, you are breaking the law, you are doing a criminal act. That is the law in Victoria from last week. So how should we respond to that? Well, I think we should be asking the same sort of questions as the first one. Is this law... And let's start with the most important one. Is this law against the law of God? Is this, is this a clash where in obeying the government, Christians can be disobeying God? Well, the Bible instructs us, Jesus instructs us to be as wise as serpents and to be as innocent as doves. So being wise as a serpent, I'm, t- I'm asking you to look at the scripture for yourself. I know exactly what I think. Look at the scripture for yourself and ask which it is. Obey the government or obey God? Which would it be? That's a suppression bill. Thirdly, finally, what about vaccine mandates? We all know what those are. They were passed last year, and the justification was that um, it would slow the spread of the disease, that it was, it was a public health necessity, and there was an order that came out that to be participant fully in the economic life of this state and in the social life, you must be vaccinated. People lost their jobs. There was, it was a very big deal. It still is. Now, I'm in public record on no less an, as, as um, acclaimed and world-famous source as a Geelong advertiser as saying uh, that, I'm on record, you can look it up, as saying that I disagree with those mandates. That's my personal view, that I disagree with them, and I still do, and today they could be removed by the government and I would celebrate. I would not shed a single tear. That's my personal view, right? But Christians as a whole fall in, in different areas in how we relate to that particular law or those particular laws. So um, the majority of Christians fall into two, um, two camps, and they are these. Um, some Christians believe that these are really good laws. 
their public health necessity and that their requirements is protecting people and protecting life, vaccine mandates are a really, really good law. Some Christians believe that wholeheartedly. Other Christians are closer to where I land and we go like, I don't personally think these laws were necessary or agree with them in all their details and their application, but nor can I say that these laws are uh, completely and utterly evil or that they're completely against the Word of God. So I feel I'm in the position, and many Christians would say the same, where we have questions about it, you know, we would probably vote against them, but is it an area where we would, we would fight and plant the flag? It doesn't seem to be that clear-cut. Most Christians are in those kind of two camps. But there are many other Christians who are not. Um, for some Christians, vaccine mandates is actually, uh, it's actually an evil attempt of the government to force people to uh, ingest uh, bioweapons that are designed to, not to, to cure them, but to kill them. So vaccine mandates are, are a deliberate attempt by the government to murder people. Um, for other Christians that, that may not agree with this, they would say, no, it's just, a, it's just an overreach of an, of an evil despotic state. The state's gathering power to itself. It's trying to, it's trying to, um, it's trying to supplant God, and this is, this is, a, this is a tactic by uh, forcing people to do this, turning everyone into lemmings and injecting them with some experimental uh, virus. And this is like... You know, if, if Jesus was here, he would say, we must stand with the oppressed, we must stand with those who are being very badly impacted by vaccine mandates. So you can see there's a really big spectrum on, on how Christians will view vaccine mandates. The government orders them, but is this an area where the government, what the government orders is against the will of God and where it's something where it's God or the government? Christians will disagree. And I think we could go around and round and round, and in this room we would have all four uh, of those views represented, and I don't think that we would agree at the end of the day on what the Bible would actually say clearly. I do know that everyone who has one of those four views thinks, yes, we would, because the Bible agrees with me. But I've spoken to enough of you to know that, that right across those spectrum, we have very clearly biblical and godly um, responses to a really complicated issue. So if the answer's not there, where is it? I think it's in chapter 1, verse 22, actually, in another area of Peter's letter. This is what he says. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So Peter says love one another. I'd love, to, for, love for Peter to address this issue of vaccine mandates specifically in his letter. He hasn't, um, but he gives, he's given us a principle. And I think the principle is humility here. Recognizing that as we look at the scripture and as we wrestle with how to live in a complex world, that sometimes Christians will disagree. And that doesn't make those who disagree with us evil. It doesn't mean that we're not taking the Bible seriously. What it means is that we're wrestling before God and with one another as a community with what is right, and that we may actually end up at different ends. Now, that humility actually says, and you know what, at the end of the day, I might actually be wrong. Like, on some things, the Bible's really clear. Others like this, it's like, I could be wrong. And one day I'll stand before the Lord Jesus, and you'll go, see, I told you I was right. You know, uh, I told you, and you didn't listen. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, I was wrong. 
There's a humility in God's people that, that demonstrates a love. And I think what it doesn't say is that we go my way or the highway. We go, you agree with me on this or I'm out. It, it's, a, it's a question of orthodoxy. You can't believe in the Bible and not agree with me on this. You're out. That just doesn't seem to me to be a loving, humble response to the Word of God. I think a far more mature and deeper one is to say, we wrestle with things as a community, and we think the best of one another in the midst of it. We don't separate, we continue to press in to love one another. So, there we go. Christians are to be subject to human authorities, Peter says. Why? For the sake of Jesus. What's the result? So that those who foolish people would say evil things about us would have to see that the way we live our lives is sweet and is winsome on the day of God's visitation. This is spoken to a people, this is important to remember, who are not weak and cowardly and cringing before human authorities. Did you hear that? Submission is never weak and cowardly when it's done for the sake of Christ. Submission is actually strength because we know who we are. Even if injustice is purged against us, we know who we are. We know our identity. As a Christian, you must know your identity and it is this. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who you are. Peter, writing to that early church, says, Christians, that who you are, you're not some weak, groveling things before the emperor and his governors. You submit to those human authorities because you are loved and chosen and elect by an authority that stands far higher than any of them, by God himself. That's who you are. And when you submit to authorities for the sake of Christ, you submit as one who, in, in the final analysis, is strong, afraid of no one but afraid of God, living in fear of the God who loves us and calls us and pours out himself for us in Jesus. And in doing that, we also model exactly, as we'll see next week, the example of Jesus himself. That's why we do it, brothers and sisters. But we must do it. The word of God commands us, be subject to human authority for the sake of Christ. I'm going to pray and invite the musicians up. We're going to close out our time by worshipping this same God, reminding ourselves who we are before him. But let's pray. Father, this is, <laughs> it's a difficult thing. Your word is a sword. It, it, it pierces our heart. It rubs against us. It, sometimes it challenges us. And Father, we pray that as a church, we would be subject to you before we're subject to any human authorities, that we'd be subject to your word, that we would live as people of your word, trusting that your word is good, that it's given us for our benefit. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to humbly then submit to the authorities you've placed over us, the human authorities. Help us to submit to our government. Help us to honor the Dan Andrews and the Scott Morrisons. Help us as your people to live lives that are beautiful, that are winsome towards a world that would mock us and would mock you. Lord, on the day of your visitation, may we as your people have lived in such a way that even those who hate us would have to proclaim your glory. 
And even better would be one to know you before that day. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. We pray for your unity in our midst. We thank you for the unity of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would, as a church, help us to press forward together, even when there are, there are times when we disagree about how things like this work out in practice. And we know, Lord, that's a prayer you love to answer. Grow us as your people as we respond faithfully to your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.